Well, in a minute, you're going to find out why I'm a little nervous about the fact that there's more of you here on this holiday weekend than I thought there would be. The first thing I need to say uh, here is that uh, we are going to get to the uh, actual scripture reading that we're dealing with. I've done this in reverse fashion, a lot of setting up uh, the tone here, setting the stage, Uh, frankly, needs to be done to kind of put this uh, topic of sexual brokenness uh, into uh, kind of a format that uh, really leads us to the Scripture, and that's my prayer here. So you're not going to, we're not going to stand to read until about the last third. So just to give you a a fair heads up on that. I'm also not going to be calling out particular sins necessarily, and this is going to be a little different than what we might imagine, but Let's get started here on uh, the fact that, uh, first of all, how excited I am that I have a whole 40 minutes to expound such an easy and surface-level topic as lies we believe and the truth we must embrace, particularly regarding how the church, how the church should respond to sexual brokenness. Guys, rest assured, undoubtedly, by the time we're done today, we're going to probably have answered every question you've ever had about broken sexuality in its most infinite detail. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. We couldn't do that uh, in a decade of teaching, let alone 40 minutes uh, or so. <laughs> we'll see. I can stay on task here. Should be able to knock that out. I am going to stay tethered to this manuscript a little bit, by the way, because this is such a delicate subject. It's such a necessary subject, particularly in the church. I need to stay tethered to this because I have literally rewritten this manuscript about seven times, and I've not done that so it's perfect. I've done that so that I am aware of as many facets, uh, as many people, as many uh, sexually broken folks and folks who are judging them as possible, right? So I am going to stay somewhat tethered to this uh, best I can. I will not stand here and read it to you. However, I will stay fairly tethered. So just a couple of qualifications. By no means, first and foremost, are we here to talk about diminishing the grave nature the seriousness of sexual sin and brokenness. We're not here to diminish that. God has a moral standard, including, and frankly, particularly, the area of sexuality. And no human being has ever lived up to that standard, period. Not any. However good you think your sexual moral is. We are, however saying that if the gospel of Christ's forgiveness and his redemption is to go forward in the world, then in the same way that Christ engages and responds to sexual sinners, for example, sexual sinners in this case, in the same way Christ engages and responds to them, so the church which represents him must, must engage and respond to sexual brokenness. We don't have a choice but to respond as he responds. And this is going to be more or less the theme that we're going to tie every to, uh, everything to this morning. The church really has a rather singular purpose. And that is, and it's an overall purpose, but it is a very singular purpose, and that is to advance the gospel, period. 
period to advance the gospel in our own hearts as well as to the world. And we all must learn to live into that purpose. Another thing we don't have a choice on. You call yourself a follower of Christ, claiming Jesus to be the only way by which you will enter into his eternal rest? I got news. You have no other choice but to learn to live into what it means to advance the gospel in every area of your life. That's a hard lesson I'm learning today. And just a thing to be aware of uh, on this teaching, some of the things that we wish we could and would talk about on such a hotbed issue as this, they're just simply not going to be there due to time constraints, due to the fact that we're aiming to substantiate the particular theme that we just mentioned. And therefore, I do say this frequently when I teach, if you want to expound these things further, if you want help in making practical applications in real life, in real time, if you want to argue with or you want to argue against me in some morning coffee forum, whatever, just text me. Text me and we'll do it. By the way, that's why I'm here. you got to help me earn the pay that our ministry is paying me to be here for, right? So text me if you want to talk about this stuff. I'm not saying I have all the answers, but from a life spent in ministry of largely pastoring, counseling uh, folks in this area of uh, broken sexuality, as a guy who himself has dealt with it gravely and still today would deal with it gravely if I were not constantly on guard, I at least have some perspective on this and I feel like I could be helpful. And listen, we're not going to cover all the juicy, controversial stuff that typically would accompany such a teaching. But there is a very specific comfort that I feel like the Lord has laid upon me to convey in terms of where we desire to land in this teaching, and it is this. God desires always to make sure that his people know the eternal weight of their sinfulness. That is, that it cost his son his life for their sake. And yet at the same time, that we can nevertheless be absolutely certain that our sins, Psalm 1, are not being counted against us if we are in Christ Jesus. If I was in a charismatic church, I'd say, can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah. (laughs) And it's the church, it's the church that has been entrusted with this gospel knowledge. And here we can tie this back to our theme. This is a little bit of logic rhetoric, so follow me on this. If the church has been entrusted with advancing the gospel so that the people of God, many whom, by the way, have not yet come to Christ. Do you understand that when I say that? There are people of God in the world who have yet to come to Christ. They're waiting to hear the gospel. And if the church has been charged with and entrusted with advancing the gospel so that the people of God can be assured and comforted that God is for them and not against them in spite of their ongoing sin, then the primary way that they will have that assurance is when the church who represents Christ responds to their sinfulness in the same way that Jesus responds to their sinfulness. It's a fact, it's a fact that the way we see Jesus engaging and responding to the sexually broken in Scripture is precisely how God is engaging us today, now, 
in our sexual brokenness. If you've seen me, says Jesus, who have you seen? You've seen God. While ours and others, ours and others, sexual brokenness seems like it's worse than just about every other sin, God's, God says what? He says it is not. And by saying that, he's not saying that he's okay with sin. Never is God saying he's okay with sin. I'm sorry, we're not the liberal church here, okay? We're not just make what we want of Scripture. There's a moral. God has that. And we fail that moral. So he's not saying he's okay with sin. But what he does say from Psalm 103.12, and we all know it well, he says that faith in Christ, he wants us to know that faith in Christ casts away all sin how far as the east is from the west. Yes? That's a long way. That's a long way. One more thing about this morning. I'm a little nervous. I, I just will tell you, I'm just a little bit nervous. This is a hard subject. If my voice is shaking, it's partially because I know this sin well and because I know what it does to people and because it's a hard thing to talk about in the church. Forgive me for that. But one more thing here is that I am inadvertently going to make somebody mad. Get ready because it's coming. I probably already have, if you don't understand the context of the title of the message, <laughs> which is that sexual sin is the worst one. It's certainly not my intention to make anyone angry. That's not why I'm here. But when on the one hand I don't seem to be coming down hard enough on sexual sinners and the spiritual grumpuses, of which I am president often, when we're just fed up because, hey, we're not just calling sin, sin, and having done with it, Right? Once and for all is to say sin is sin. I've already said that. It's clear. Sexual sin is sin. Whatever form it takes. Heterosexual, homosexual, identity crises, whatever the case may be. We all deal with it. We all, hello, all deal with it. We all deal with it. We call it sin. But on the other side of that, I'm going to make somebody mad when... If I point to the Word of God, which explicitly informs us of His sexual ethic, which invariably will be countercultural and therefore different than many of our own sexual ethic, then guess what? Some of us are not going to like that. My hope here this morning is that God will grant us all ears to hear what He is saying objectively and personally in His Word, albeit through such a faulty vessel as myself. So let's get down to it. Let's dig in on this topic of how the church should respond to sexual brokenness. First of all, what's the lie? What's the lie that we, in this series that we're undergoing, lies we believe, the truth we must embrace, what's the lie that we as the church believe, and what's the truth that, must, uh, that we must embrace about broken sexuality? Well, let me set up the lie. Again, we've probably given the lie away in the title of the message particularly though in the context of the cultural time we're living in with rampant sexual indiscretions, abuses, allegations, with gender identity crises, with homosexual identity no longer being a closeted identity because it's now broadly accepted in Western culture. Quick little blurb, I'm not supposed to go on rabbit trails. Do you know what the greatest thing that's ever happened to the church is? 
for homosexuals not to have to be closeted anymore. How radical does that sound? And why is that the greatest thing that's ever happened to the church? Because now we can talk about it. Because now we can discuss what's going on in real life and not pretend with pasted on faces in the church that I'm great. You know how many people there are in the church who love Jesus and are struggling identifying as homosexuals? Don't know what to do with that information? We want trouble in the world because it's why we're here. It's why we're here. The subsequent changes that our culture is undergoing as a result of those developments, here's the deal. The lie we believe as the church, as a whole, not every individual, is that in fact sexual brokenness is the worst of all sins. Take note that for many of us in the church, we don't believe this lie in a theological way, and nor should we, because sin again is sin. But when it comes to our practical, real-time belief, we do believe that. We do believe it's the worst sin. Here's an example of this real-time belief of that lie, how it works out with us a lot of the time. Most of us know the strange feeling of comparing the crimes we read in the news, comparing which one is worse than the other. Hello? Tell me I'm lying that sexual crimes right aren't, aren't right there at the top of our list every time. Every time. They're the worst ones. Again, theologically, we know. We know according to Scripture. That's not even remotely true. It's not the worst one. Of course I know that. Right? If you're from New York. But we find ourselves believing the lie before we even realize that it's happening. Furthermore, we not only tend to believe this lie about others that sexual brokenness is the worst sin, but we tend to believe it about ourselves if it just so happens, as I just mentioned, that we as lovers, believers, and followers of Christ simultaneously find ourselves struggling deeply with sexual sin, whether we're acting on it or not. Finally, what's the big deal about believing this lie? This is pretty huge, guys. Not because I wrote it, but because it's huge. The big deal about believing this lie that sexual broken, uh, brokenness is the worst kind of sin, it's twofold. For the person who is particularly beset with sexual brokenness and doesn't know how to change that about themselves and desperately wants to, to no avail or to little avail, which by the way, to the addict, to the sexual broken, little avail, like they're changing some, means no avail. I want to change completely and it's not happening. I don't know how to make that happen. To those people, to believe that their particular besetting sin is the worst kind is for them to eventually conclude that the gospel is good for everyone but them. And for those of us in the church, if we're not particularly beset with that sin and we see others that are, and we believe that lie that sexual brokenness is the worst sin, then here's what we're going to do. We're simply going to fail miserably at responding as Jesus does with both truth and compassion. 
We'll get the truth side of the equation right almost every time, right? But love, compassion, not ever. Not ever. If we believe that sexual sin is the worst kind of sin, this attitude will 100% of the time, this approach to sexual sinners, when we are not dealing with that sin ourselves this way, it will 100% of the time keep us from doing what we're here to do on this earth, and that is to advance the gospel. And why? Because we will pick and choose, often without realizing that we're doing it, we'll pick and choose the quality of person that we think is worthy to receive our time and effort in expressing the gospel to them. I've done that. Somebody here has done that. I will. If in the church we have an attitude and an approach that says, your sin, sexual sinner guy, sexual sinner girl, your sin's the worst kind. If we have that kind of attitude and approach and we stay static with that approach and we never mend that, then without realizing we're doing it, we will pick and choose the quality of person that we think is worthy to receive our time and effort in us expressing the gospel to them. Does that statement make sense? Yeah. God tells us there's an elect. But you know what he never tells us? He doesn't give us names and addresses and phone numbers. He doesn't do that. You go tell everybody, I'll sort that out. So how do we counter and avoid all of this catastrophe? Well, we embrace the truth about sexual brokenness, and we embrace it as Jesus Christ himself addresses sexual brokenness and the sexually broken. Here's the truth that we must embrace. Let me set this up. I want you to notice here, as we go to the truth that we must embrace, I want you to notice that in contrast to the lie that we believe which is primarily an existential or personal construct. That is, we made it up. We made it up by some distortion of how we think God judges us and others based merely on our behaviors. The lie is something we make up. It's an existential thing. It's a, it's a personal thing. It's just what I believe. In contrast to that, the truth we must embrace is going to be instead derived almost entirely from what we see of, and here we're going to say it again, what we see of how Christ responds to sexual brokenness in the Gospels, in the Word of God. That is, hey, go figure. Go figure. Whereas the lie comes from within the sinful self with all of its subjectivity and relative truth, that's us, the self, so the truth will come from Jesus Christ who is all at once the objective and nevertheless personal John 14:6 say it with me the way the truth the truth and the life right that's where we're deriving the truth from thus the truth we must embrace is this and it's very simple but frankly very profound for our attitude and approach to sexual sinners Sexual brokenness is covered under the same atoning work of Christ as all other brokenness. Let that rest on you. 
It's not the worst one. That is, the lie that sexual sin is the worst of all sins is just that. It's a lie. In Christ, no matter the sexual sin that besets us, in Christ, no matter that we have been victims or perpetrators of it, in Christ, God does not count our sins against us because they are literally and forever, 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 literally, literally hidden in Christ's atoning life and death for our sake. Colossians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, make a note of that. They are forever hidden. And so as we begin to approach our text this morning, here's something that we should have in our minds, in our hearts. We as the church, the body of Christ, are the physical representation of the heart, hands, and feet of Christ in the world. And we have a God-bestowed calling and a God-bestowed obligation to respond to all sinners, including ourselves. When we recognize the sin about ourselves, we have an obligation and calling to respond with the same truth and compassion as Christ himself responds with to sinners in the Gospels when we see that in that narrative, in those narratives. Now, we see Christ engage with the sexually broken in enough places in Scripture that you know, we just don't have time to expound on all of those. So I've chosen Luke 7, uh, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, specifically because it's perhaps the most complete of these types of engagements where he engages with the sexually broken. That's where we're going to focus on how Jesus responds to sexual brokenness, and I'll say it for the 90th time, and thus how the church must respond to sexual brokenness. And just so we're clear, I know we're Presbyterians, right? However, we do know that the church is not the hierarchical figure that's responding, right? We're not waiting for some guy paid in some office in the church to respond. I'm talking about us individually, right? We make up the church. So when I say the church, that's you. This text doesn't leave us to wonder much. Doesn't leave us to wonder about the grievousness of the sin. Doesn't leave us to see how it's perceived uh, in the community. We don't, we don't know, you know any less. We see it clearly how it's being perceived in the community, how this sexual brokenness, the sexual sin is causing the isolation to the broken one who's caught up in their sin. We see it. In this narrative, we know exactly how the religious community, sometimes that's us, feels about both the sin and the sinner, the broken and her brokenness. And most importantly, we get to see precisely how Jesus, God himself, that's who Jesus is, how he engages and responds to this sexually broken person with both truth and compassion in equal measure. So Jesus has a three-pronged simultaneous approach in dealing with sin and sinner here. In this text, he implicitly calls the sin sin by proposing no argument that she is indeed an immoral woman is the term that's used. He then does what God is famous for, he looks at the woman's broken heart towards her sin and looks at her longing heart towards him. 
and not our actions, by the way. Even though, also implicit in the story is the fact that to whatever degree, she's still engaged in her sinful behavior. We'll get to that in just a second. She's still engaged in it to some degree. And finally, Jesus, in his third prong approach here, Jesus undoubtedly has in his heart and mind the atoning work that he, at least at this time in the narrative, at this time, his time on earth, he undoubtedly has in his heart and his mind the atoning work that he is currently doing for her sake and that it will be applied to her ultimately. That is, that he is living the perfect life for her that she obviously cannot live. And that he eventually is dying the death that should have been hers to die because of her sin. So what's the outcome of all this? Well, the outcome is that the God of the universe in human flesh, Jesus Christ, the judge of all the living and the dead, forgives her in an eternal way Oh, yes, he effectively declares this immoral woman righteous even while she is living in the midst of her sin. Freaking radical. I hope freaking's okay. <laughs> it's out there now. <laughs> and you know what? I'm aware. I'm aware, God's aware, that our flesh is going to see this kind of emphasis as a loophole, as a license for sinning, which of course means probably that the point is lost on you if you go to take advantage of this, that God declares us righteous because of our faith in Christ, even while we're in the midst of our sin. We're going to leave that between you and Jesus. What else happens here? You guys are like, get to the text, man! Jesus makes a strong point of how the so-called religious people, the Pharisees, by thinking of her sexual sin as so heinous that they couldn't even associate with her, let alone minister to her, that in doing so, they basically condemn her in such a way that says, you can never be redeemed, immoral woman, sinner. You can never be redeemed. Because why? Because we're looking at the law of God and, it, and we think that's what it says. Remember that existential construct, the lie, the one we make up? That's what they're doing. That's absolutely never our right or responsibility. Here's what we're to do as the church from Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Here's what we're to do. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Paul says this. He says, you, the church, must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That is, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Translation to the church. This is what we are called to, giving ourselves up for those we don't agree with. Politically, socially, culturally, sexually, whatever it is, giving ourselves up for them. Losing our lives, as it were, to gain them. We've heard that before. 
Never pronouncing a final judgment, but always living for others in the hope and anticipation that no matter what we see on the outside of a person in terms of behaviors, though that can be indicative of so much mess, yes, no matter what we see on the outside in terms of behaviors, until their final breath, they are never beyond the Lord's redemption. They are never beyond the Lord's redemption. Do you hear that? Do we believe that? Do we live into that? Because you know what God sees? He sees their heart. He sees their heart that is breaking at night when they lay their head down on the pillow. He sees their heart that's breaking because they'd give anything to not be like this, whatever this is. And now they're so caught up in the only community that accepts them. And now they're so caught up in a a politicization and a society that says, it's okay And now they're so caught up in so many things that when they hear the beauty of life from Jesus, they have a conflicting opinion that says, I would love to do that. I'd love to come. But like this? Like this? If you're able for reverence out of the love for God's word, Please, uh, let's stand and read from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. This is how Jesus exemplifies these things. By the way, guys, one of the other reasons I saved this towards the end is simply because this is not a mystery, this text. This isn't something where we need theological scholars to break it down. Every one of us should get it. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so Jesus went to his home and he sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, when a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet. And she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet. And putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, (laughs) he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Love that. Jesus answered his thoughts. Jesus answered his thoughts. He said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. He says, a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. By the way, about a day's wage, each of those pieces of silver is being represented here. It's a lot. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Jesus says, who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. I put in parentheses, Simon, the one who doesn't understand which one of these people he is. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. 
You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, take this in if this is you. Seriously. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of God. You can be seated. All right, so we've set all this up fairly well. Again, this is pretty obvious what's happening here. I did most of the exposition for you before we ever read the text. But let's insert ourselves into this narrative just a little bit and find out who we identify with most. This is not to be uh, condemning. This is to challenge us. And by the way, I'm implying that we decide between the Pharisees and Jesus whom we most identify with. But for some of us, we may find that at some level we identify actually with the immoral woman, even if we're not acting on our thoughts. And that's okay too, particularly if it means that God is taking you through that journey, as it were, if at some point you can more easily sympathize and identify with other sexually broken people. Let's remember that as with all of our brokenness, particularly in the sexual category, it is never, ever lost on us once we're in the process of being redeemed by Christ. It's to be given then back in the way of identification, sympathy, friendship. And particularly if it means that we've seen the lost side of that equation and the redeemed and being redeemed side of the equation. Here's a real life proposal based on some actual situations that I've been involved in as a pastor, as a counselor over the years, as a family member for that matter, so we can see kind of where we land. So somebody you're well acquainted with tells you this could be anybody. This could be a child. This could be a parent. This could be a friend. This could be whoever. Somebody you're well acquainted with tells you that they're engaged in some form of sexual brokenness or even that they identify in some ways that's contrary to your beliefs because to you it's contrary, and, and often that's true, it's contrary to God's word. Is your static response more like Simon the Pharisee or more like Christ's in Luke 7? And I say static in contrast to what many of us would experience, which is fairly natural, which is initial shock, disbelief, confusion, even anger. Nobody's saying that that's not going to be a natural response, right? You've had a, an impression of this person for a long time, an expectation of this person, a hope for this person, and suddenly it's just, ah. The question is whether we continue to engage in that manner <laughs> over an extended period of time. If we never mend that. In other words, do we staunchly hold our religious ground, even in subtle, passive-aggressive ways? The answer to that is, uh-huh. Do we just staunchly hold our religious ground, like the Pharisee, or do we at least eventually deal with the situation as it is, looking instead for the heart of the person rather than their behavior? rather than even what they've just told you they think they are or what they're doing. Because that's what Jesus does in Luke 7. And we've maintained all along, 
just to remind us that we as the church are called to advance the benefits of the gospel in the world by representing Christ to the world because we are his body. Invariably, if we maintain a posture of being right, and though we likely are technically according to Scripture, we will eventually build a wall between us and that person. And make no mistake, in Luke 7, the Pharisees were absolutely right according to God's law. At the very least, according to his sexual laws that we see in Leviticus 18. Read that sometime. (laughs) You're like, I can't do nothing. There's no question she was immoral. And take note that from the cultural context that this story is in, immoral, when they use that word every time, means sexually immoral. Not that she's just doing some bad stuff. She's specifically engaging in that. Jesus never refutes, by the way, the fact one time. He never says, no, she's not a sinner. Hold on. In fact, he implies that he agrees with the Pharisees' assessment, with the culture, with the society around her. He agrees with their assessment that she's sinful when he tells the story of how the man who owed money forgave, forgave the debt of the two debtors. Hey, what's to forgive if there's not been any transgression? So, of course, there's been transgression. Furthermore, the original Greek here uses the term hamartolas. You have to say it like that, apparently. But hamartolas, to describe the woman in terms of, of the behavior, here's what they're describing the woman as. That term is that you are devoted to sinning, that you are not free from sin, that you are still under its influence in a welcoming way. That's literally the way they write this story in the original language. That she is preeminently, hamartolas, she is preeminently and especially wicked. So what's the linchpin in this narrative? In one minute, 54 seconds. What is the great peripety here? Peripety just means the thing that kind of turns this thing on its head unexpectedly. Is it that Jesus just swallows his righteous judgment and gives a wink and a nod to his laws that he spoke in the Old Testament as God himself? Is it just that Jesus wants to be a nice guy because he can see that this poor woman is being ganged up on by the mean religious folks? And for the immoral woman's part, does she think that maybe if she cries enough and anoints Christ's feet and even begs for forgiveness that eventually maybe she'll be forgiven? Perhaps there's a small part of her, yes, that believes that. We all know that feeling from time to time. But here's what's most likely happening. The works of Jesus have been public knowledge in this region where the woman lived for some time now. And by the time Luke 7 rolls around, this woman has likely heard some of the stories. The stuff Jesus is doing, it doesn't stay under a bushel. People know what's up. Maybe she was there at some point, seeing some stuff in real time. Speculation, I know, but very likely. Perhaps she's heard of or seen Jesus hearing the para, uh, healing the paralytic, and not only that, but forgiving him of his sins in a way that was letting everybody at the time know that, hey, if this guy has control over physics and nature, he probably has the authority to forgive sin. Maybe she's thinking of that, or maybe she's just heard Jesus teaching in Luke 6 where he implies that undeserved forgiveness for sin is far more on Jesus' mind than the judgment we actually deserve. 
judgment she feels she deserves because she knows the desperation in her soul over her sexual brokenness. So when she goes to Christ, and here's the linchpin, she goes with a posture of confession and repentance. And with that posture, automatically for all of us comes an anticipation of God's forgiveness, an anticipation of God's forgiveness, a sure hope that he will accept us, that he will draw us in close to himself. And in Chronicles 7.14, in 1 John 1.9, God says we should anticipate his forgiveness. We should anticipate that when we come to him with a posture of repentance and confession. And whereas the religious community would not offer this forgiveness unless it saw her behavior change, caring little or nothing about her actual heart on the matter, Jesus absolutely sees nothing but the heart of the sinner even when we are actively participating in our sins. I asked earlier who we identify with in the story. Many of us, myself included, would probably have to confess that we're more naturally like the Pharisees in our engagement with sexual brokenness. We believe the lie that at some level, even if for a moment, sexual sin is the worst kind. However, there's a but here. There's a but here. If we're wanting to represent Christ well, to advance the gospel in the world, the but is, when we come to know this about ourselves, that we're a bit more like the Pharisees often, not all of us are, but many, many in the church, as a whole, at large, oh yeah. When we come to realize that about ourselves, we ourselves can repent of this so that we can begin to live into the gospel calling, which is to send that out to the world around us. And it will help us embrace the truth that sexual brokenness is covered under the same atoning work of Christ as all other brokenness. At the end of all this, we stop engaging in judgment, right? We stop doing that. We do what we're called to do in the world. And I will finish with this quote. When he's asked what the church is work in the world is and why we are not taken immediately up into heaven when we're saved. He says this, he says, the essential reason that we who make up the church are not immediately taken up to be with God after he saves us in Christ is because we now live almost exclusively to bring in the spiritually sick and dying in order to point them to and place them before Christ that he would have mercy upon them. And that we would have such a radical love for the lost because we ourselves were once so lost that, if necessary, we will tear out our neighbor's roof, referring to Mark 2.4, for instance, that we will tear out our neighbor's roof in order to accomplish placing them directly in front of Jesus. That's our mission. That's what we do. So there's two things before we pray that we walk away with, and they're very important. The first one is, don't destroy your neighbor's property unless it's for Jesus. (laughs) Do strive to represent Christ when we engage with others or even ourselves who are sexually broken, and God will honor that by advancing his gospel in our own hearts and thus into the world. Let's pray.